Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched Henri-Georges Clouseau's Diabolique, considered one of the earliest classic horror and thriller films. It stars Simone Signoret and Vera Clouseau as the mistress and wife of an abusive schoolmaster, played by Paul Maurice. The women decide to plan the perfect murder to get rid of their tormentor, but as always, something goes wrong. So we decided to do this somewhat spontaneously because I kind of randomly watched this movie a couple months ago and I absolutely loved it. And then I recommended it to Gav and she also thought it was great. And so we decided to do a podcast about it. There's no other hook. No one requested this. But I mean, I just was completely blown away by this movie. I think it's kind of one of the best films I've ever seen. And we love classic cinema on this podcast, and I think a lot of our listeners do too. But if you are someone who listens to this podcast and isn't as familiar with old movies, I think this is a great movie to watch if you aren't as familiar and if you do like horror or thrillers, because it will kind of, I think it's a great like gateway drug into older movies. Yeah, I mean, it's historically foundational. It's got this Alfred Hitchcock adjacent hook, which we will go into and it's very fun and accessible while being a twisted tale of infidelity and homicide and spooky mysteries and potential ghosts and it all takes place in a weird all-boys boarding school so there's something for everyone and the two main characters are a pair of murderous women who are both very different physical and thematic types. Yeah I mean as is often the case when you're watching these old films and I am way more familiar with sort of classic cinema from Hollywood rather than anywhere else in the world. I've seen some stuff, but much less international film from like before the seventies. It's one of my goals for the next year or two to watch more of that stuff. But it is nevertheless true that you watch a movie from, you know, the fifties and you're like, wow, there's a lot of like feminist stuff going on here. Because it's just always been true that there's, you know, the plight of women. Simultaneously, absolutely true. And also, I think somewhat noticeable that um, this was the period where American movies were often a bit more censored than European movies. And one of the draws of French and generally European cinema is that there was a lot more kind of adult content that people could watch in smaller repertory theatres in the US. And watching this, I'm like, yeah, this does seem dirtier than a mainstream film from 1955 in America. <laughs> well, also, there's like an elaborate, quite brutal sequence where they murder the guy. And it's not like gory in the way that you might yeah. see a movie now, but it's pretty, it's like, it's bad. disturbing. The stuff yeah. that happens, I was like, wow, I was very impressed by the effect. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of what really struck me about this movie, which is incredibly precisely constructed and shot, And we have some sort of quotes and anecdotes about the director, Clouseau, who was, sounds like not a fun guy to work with because he was so incredibly precise. And that precision made him kind of old fashioned and out once the French New Wave comes in. And then everyone's all about like being really loose and spontaneous all the time because his style was totally the opposite of that. But the combination of everything feeling incredibly carefully constructed And the fact that then there are these really disturbing images 
and disturbing things implied in it. Like quite early in the film, there's a scene where it's very directly implied that this guy has is like off screen raping his wife. And it doesn't linger on that, but it's like clear that that's what's going on. Yeah, I just think the combination of the formalism and then the fact that there's this like huge, horrible darkness in the movie, like they butt up against each other in really interesting ways. How well put, Morgan. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So, Morgan, shall we segue into some background on the director, Mr. Clouseau, who um, made several acclaimed movies at this period? Yes. So this is the first Clouseau film I've seen. So I feel like I slash we are a little bit underqualified to be talking about him. But after watching this, I was like, oh my god, I have to watch more of this guy's movies, which I'm going to do. But um, I didn't go too deep into his biography. He was born in a town called New York, which features in the movie in 1907, and had some kind of health issues. So initially, he was working as a screenwriter as opposed to a director. But whatever was wrong with him cleared up enough that he then started working as a director in, I guess, the late late 30s, early 40s. His first notable film is called Le Corbeau, and it's an anti-collaboration movie, obviously made during the war, that was funded or partially funded by Germans. So that movie basically pissed off literally everyone, because German people were pissed off about it. The Vichy French were pissed off about it. The people in the resistance were pissed off about it. Like, it's just designed to make everyone angry. So... He, he was sort of not popular for a while. And then in the subsequent years, he makes a few flops and then interspersed with the flops, he also makes Wages of Fear, which is a huge hit, and uh, Quai des Orfebvres, which is another huge hit. And in those movies, Wages of Fear is about people transporting incredibly liable to explode bomb material over like roads that aren't fully paved in South America somewhere or something like he he got a reputation as being kind of a master of suspense. And that obviously feeds into this movie, which isn't so much about like something might literally kill these people any at any minute, but they're clearly emotionally racked throughout much. I mean, it's about the protagonist character being increasingly tormented first by her husband and then by the specter of her husband. Yeah. Which, once again, a definite Alfred Hitchcock theme. The key difference being that she is a brunette. Well, Signore is blonde. So there is one. Yeah, Signore is blonde. Yeah, we do, have a, we do have an absolute blonde in here. Yeah. Yeah. And right after making that film, The Wages of Fear, he was like, I need to buy the film rights to this novel, which also has really great vibes, written by this. Uh, novel writing partnership from France whose uh, books have been adapted in various ways. But as we were kind of saying at the end of last week's episode, it's kind of surprising they haven't been adapted more recently because it seems like they were a real source of dynamite screenplay material. But yeah, Clouseau bought these film rights and in doing so prevented Hitchcock from getting them himself. So a little bit of a rivalry there. Yeah. um, So the, the writers were this French pair named Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcejac, obviously not a, not a native French name there. And this was their first novel. And they were big. I was reading some academic article. And apparently they were huge Hitchcock fans and also were big fans of Edgar Allan Poe, which all totally makes sense if you yeah. watch this movie. <laughs> it tracks. Yep. And 
then they wrote The Living and the Dead, which was the basis for Vertigo, specifically being like, maybe Hitchcock will adapt this. Which, like, what a life to be like, yes, we're going to write this book specifically so that Alfred Hitchcock, the greatest filmmaker of all time, will adapt it into what becomes his greatest movie. Congratulations. I guess you could just rest on your laurels at that point. But Clouseau was kind of known as the French Hitchcock. And Hitchcock did not like that at all. He was really pissy about it. And he made Psycho after Diabolique came out because he was like, I'm the best one. Like, I have to make the scariest movie. And there's a sense that, like, Psycho is also based on a novel and only has really the one big scene in the shower that's, like, particularly scary. But there's a sense that that's designed to sign of, like, top this film, which has a big scary bathtub scene. And honestly, I mean, part of, like, I don't want to downplay the importance of the shower scene in Psycho, which has been analysed intensely and had some precursors in other films. But part of the success of that movie is, like, incredibly good marketing. So before the film came out, people had already cemented in their minds the idea they were about to see the scariest movie of all time, which helps a lot. You know, it helped a lot with The Exorcist as well. Well, also, Psycho, like, you weren't supposed to tell people the spoiler in Psycho. And there is literally a title card at the end of Diabolique that says, don't be devils. (laughs) I mean, wasn't Psycho the one where the trailer was him doing, like, a walking tour of the set and being like, I built this set to make my masterpiece, but I'm not going to tell you what goes on in the set. Just watch the film. I won't say what it's about. It's terrifying. Goodbye. (laughs) I believe so. Yeah, because he would have been such a famous figure himself by that point, right? I just laughed so much at the end of this movie when there's a, literally a spoiler warning at the end of the film because now, yes. like, you know, publicists go nuts about that being like, don't say anything about this in your, re- like, anything about the movie at all in your It review. was honestly so pleasurable to see that title card because, like, you'd already told me because, like, part of your pitch for this movie is like, oh, it's got a title card at the end that says no spoilers. And I watched it. I was like, no, I, I won't spoil it. I mean, we'll spoil it in the podcast, but um, later on. But, um... I was like, yeah, after watching this film, you put a title card at the end saying don't spoil the twist. It's like, yeah, as a human person, I'm not going to spoil the twist. But whenever I get like a PR email from Disney being like, here's the 97 things you can't spoil from like episode one of this show that's going to shut the screen in 12 hours. I just, it just honestly makes me want to go on a rampage. (laughs) None of these things are actually spoilers. Right. And that's, I mean, that's like the diseased, you know, child of these movies from the 50s that were like, don't tell your friends. But it is interesting to think about the very early culture of a film that like you had to see right away, right? Because there was this like buzz around it and this sense of surprise and suspense, which not that there weren't scary movies made in the 30s or whatever, but... I think the sense of a movie being an event in this way, and like this movie was a huge hit all over the world, and that you didn't want to know what happened at the end or in the middle, as is the case in Psycho, is pretty novel at this point. And it still feels fresh I truly would love to watch this movie in a horrible 1950s cinema, gagging with cigarette smoke with a bunch (laughs) of other people screaming. It sounds great. The cigarette smoke is part of the vibe. Yes, it sounds like an amazing experience. And I also think, technically, I think this movie is perfect. But one of the things that really stuck out to me, I watched it two times. um, There's almost no music in it. Like virtually none. It comes in at a couple super, super heightened emotional places. But basically, almost nothing. And so in a lot of ways, it feels 
quite art film e like European yeah. art film, but yes. also has this sense of like, and then they're gonna murder this dude, and then it's gonna be really then there's like a detective's gonna try to investigate, and they have to avoid the police, right? And so it's like all of these crime tropes that would have been very familiar to people from pulp novels. And yet it's being executed in this, like, incredibly precise Well, way, as right? always, the way to make the greatest art of all time is to make a classy version of schlock, preferably involving <laughs> a detective investigating a murder, which is just, like, people truly never stop doing that. I mean, with this, the lack of music, I feel like, really kind of immerses you in the setting. Like, the scene setting is very good here you really feel like you're in a real horrible boys boarding school and also the 50s is kind of this period where there's loads of melodramas with really schmaltzy music so this feels very distinct by comparison yes and something like i mean i've just watched a couple douglas sirk movies and i don't remember thinking about the music too much but i'm sure there is a ton of like swelling you know well <laughs> well when he did that episode on douglas sirk and todd haynes like the modern music they did for the todd haynes version of one of his films was literally the music they had in douglas sirk movies and it is all precisely what i was saying which is like all these sort of fluttering strings and like these kind of oboes being like would you like to cry now <laughs> and i mean it totally works in his movies yeah Obviously, i mean i love that music it's great <laughs> He's a master, but it is very refreshing to watch this, which is not a sentimental movie in any... It is melodramatic in the sense that what's happening is probably not going to happen to you. But, like, it's not sentimental about its characters or the emotions. It's very psychologically down-to-earth in a way that is both refreshing and quite unpleasant at times well it's because it it does this sort of combination of like the lead actress gives this very precise but also like extreme performance where she's terrified and nervous for the whole movie so you really empathize with her really strongly and you see her perspective but also the point of view of the film is very sort of spectator like so you're like watching it all unfold from this quite unpleasant trapped position yes i think that's a great way of putting it and i think that part of that has to do with the fact that it's not purely from her point of view. It's you have the both of the women as sort of the main characters. So it's not completely giving in to one perspective or the other. And it does sometimes jump to like the other teachers. Like it's not staying just with them, but the two women are working together, but they're very, very different. So instead of kind of being from the perspective of one of them, it's kind of just presenting the situation for you to assess yourself and letting, I mean, obviously it's manipulating you because that's how movies work, but you feel that way. And the actors are so incredible that a lot of what you're doing is kind of assessing how they Assessing the tension between their power imbalance, because so much of what the movie is about is between these various power, is about the power imbalances between these various people. So right at the beginning of the movie, we understand that this man has a tremendous amount of power over both these women, but especially his wife. There's a scene at the beginning where he has bought rotted fish 
for everyone to eat except himself, obviously, because he's going to eat. Yeah. I mean, they're all teachers at this boarding school, by the way. So it's like he's the headmaster and then his wife is one of the teachers and then his mistress is one of the other teachers. And like right at the beginning of the film, it sets up this interesting sort of not really romantic love triangle where the mistress and the wife are both friends and co-workers partly just by circumstance, while also, you know, one of them is the wife and one of them is the mistress. And he is clearly this absolute asshole. And as Morgan says, you see that he is just horrible, not just to his wife, but to everyone, because he is forcing all of these kids to eat rotten fish. And you see him, you know, being really stingy about the wine that all of the teachers are allowed to drink. Like they're only allowed a little glass of horrible wine and all this kind of stuff. And he forces his wife to eat the rotten fish. And this goes yes. on for like two minutes. And he's she's really like, abusive. It's yeah. And the first thing we see of Simone Signore, who plays the mistress, is she's wearing sunglasses in school in class because he's punched her in the face. Right? So immediately this guy is established as A horrible, but also B clearly the person in charge, which there's this added tension of the fact that the money comes from the wife. So she's the one who really owns the school and she feels like she tries to stand up for the kids because she's more concerned about them than her own well-being. But because he's the husband and the headmaster, he just ignores her. But there's also this power imbalance between the two women because the mistress character is the one who has set up this whole plot to murder this guy and she needs the collaboration of the wife to pull it off. But the wife is very devoutly Catholic and just much more of a passive masochistic person. And so she is like terrified of doing this. It's a sin. She doesn't want to kill her husband. And Simone Signore, the mistress, is just like, we have to do this. And so she's kind of like bullying her into killing this guy. But also they probably should kill this guy because he's a monster but it's like not a morally straightforward situation right and as i mentioned kind of in the intro i do think their appearance is super relevant because the styling and the casting really strongly plays into the way both of these women are characterized like you've got the husband who um is a you know a middle-aged french character actor so he's just like a guy Um, i mean fantastic performance but he kind of is just like a, a, a guy And then Simone Signore and Vera Cluzo look very different. So Vera, who plays the wife, is very petite, very slim. She has dark hair, which is often kind of braided in pigtails in a very childlike way, kind of like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And this actress at this point was like 40, but she looks really girlish and youthful. And then her counterpart... Simone Signore is like significantly taller, has like a much kind of broader build and she has short blonde hair and like in the 50s, short hair, reasonably unusual, obviously dyed blonde hair and is a lot more kind of trendy and like wearing sexy makeup and stuff. So you've got the wife wearing these sort of very modest little pinafores and shawls and stuff because she's sickly. She she has various unexplained ailments that make her kind of weak and nervous and prone to potentially having a heart attack or something. And then the mistress is like wearing sunglasses with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and she's wearing like very, very tight skirts 
and like cardigan jackets over the top in a way that makes her look very cool and quite American. So it's very different physical types. Yeah, the contrast between the two of them just in their natural build, but also in the way that their style is so smart. I mean, Vera Cluzo wears these incredibly tall heels the entire movie because she's so tiny that they just like need to make her tall enough so that she's like in the frame with everyone else, which I found very funny every time I got a glimpse of her feet. But the fact that she's mostly wearing skirts that are kind of like big and look more like you would think a sort of traditional 50s skirt, but all that also makes her look quite young and girlish. And then that compared to the tight skirts you're describing on Senior A, they just look completely like different animals. And when they're in these scenes together, they're always kind of dancing back and forth between there being a sense of solidarity between them because they're both the victims of this monster. And... I think they're both incredible, but I think Signore is absolutely astounding in this movie. I don't know that I've ever seen her in anything before. I'm sure yeah, I have. Yeah, me neither. Because but... when we were kind of looking into the background of this movie, there's this great article on the Criterion website, which is kind of just about her career as this legendary French actress and also political activist. But even when I was watching this film, I was like, this is a really interesting role because she already is like she's very beautiful and stuff but she's not like perfect looking and glamorous in a way that was like extremely you were like really pressured to be so in the 50s I mean also throughout history but like this article in Criterion was kind of going into the fact that like part of her success and longevity is due to the fact that she aged very naturally and in her own words she was like I'm fat and ugly once she was kind of a later middle age and fully accepted that as part of just the aging process and her career and what roles she would take. And that is like very unusual for an actress to be able to retain their career in that position at sort of like A-list status, either just in terms of like sexism and not allowing people to be cast or the fact that like people are just really trying as hard as they can to continue to look like they're 29 years old forever. Yeah, and... The article was pointing out that she did continue to have, like, a ton of success when she was older, which, as you say, is not common, and was sort of arguing that because Bardot was coming up at a similar time or, like, a little bit later, and she was sort of seen as, like, the sex goddess of France, that she got a little bit more of that pressure, and Signore, who was incredibly beautiful when she was young, I mean, she's gorgeous in this movie, could be allowed to be a little bit more of a person as opposed to Bardo who really <laughs> And because she was playing know, all these roles that were apparently like very tough women that was her brand. Yeah there's a quote here it says she consistently plays the strong woman who both knows her own mind and acts upon her desire often through just a look and I think that is such a like perfect description of what she's doing in this movie that I can't think of, I mean, obviously I've seen other performances in that vein, but I think it's rare to see an actress conveying so such a strong sense of purpose physically. Obviously she has dialogue well, where she's talking partners, about it. It's because her scene partners are women, because usually yeah. when you're watching a movie where a woman is manipulating a man, it's just portrayed as straightforward seduction. And in yep. this, although there are like definitely homoerotic elements, this is more to do with her 
bullying this other woman, you know, intimidating her and pressuring her, even though, as you say, there is this sense of solidarity. As we mentioned right at the beginning, not a major spoiler, the whole first act of this movie is setting up the two of them conspiring to murder their husband slash boyfriend. And um, they go off to like this secluded boarding house where one of them rents uh, an apartment to go and do this. And obviously the protagonist, the wife, really doesn't want to do this. And she's really nervous. And her performance is honestly like it's very over the top because she's just panicking really intensely. And she's like this little baby animal with big eyes. And then the mistress character is sort of crowding her a little bit, you know, trying to find ways to like pressure her into getting this plan to go through. Yeah, and I think the seesaw of that balance between sympathy and her being like, no, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, is really carefully done. And as a viewer, I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, just go and murder him. Like, stop being such a wuss. But obviously it's like, I'm not going to do any murders. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And when he, so they go off to the mistress's, house in new york which is like i think they say it's like a 10 hour drive like it's quite a ways oh yeah she's not she's not renting it she's the landlady and then she's got tenants there yeah because there's a very funny interplay with like the upstairs or downstairs tenants where it's like there's this older couple who are always sort of spying on them being really annoying and like the husband is obsessed with when the pipes are making noise because like he wants the pipes not to be interrupting his radio program and stuff and i was like i love this (laughs) yeah so they go off to that it's just supposed to be the mistress who goes because they have like a you know three-day weekend or something but the wife goes as well and the husband is not happy about this and she calls him up and says she's gonna ask for a divorce so then he gets on the train and follows them and when he shows up they're alone together in this apartment and he is so over the top awful to her and she's trying to reconcile with him because she doesn't really want to kill him And he's completely horrible to her. He hits her. And then she's kind of like, fine. Like, I will feed you this drugged wine. And like, fuck you, basically. And the feeling of this woman sort of not having an escape route except to do this is very strong, I think. Because this guy is completely impossible. And she has been given this solution by a very strong-willed person. Yeah, I mean, it's an instructional movie in why so many women poison their husbands. (laughs) And it's because they weren't given financial, they weren't given control over their finances and you couldn't get divorced. It's like, poison was the the most popular method. (laughs) Yeah, and I think Vera Clouseau is really wonderful in this movie too. It's a very different kind of performance to Signore, but I think that that is generative. Like, I think that the two of them bounce off each other really well, even if Clouseau is giving a more like heightened performance it fits her character yeah really i mean well. you could say that clouseau is starring in the horror movie and then signore is starring in the thriller movie yeah i think that's a great way of putting it and i think that that's perfect they combine to make the synthesis of the two clouseau was brazilian french and she plays that in this movie and she was originally married to some french actor who and like that was how she wound up in france and then she met her husband, second husband, Clouseau, the director, through this first guy. Um, and she only made three films. They were all films that Clouseau directed. And then she died pretty soon after this movie of a heart attack. So she has this sort of like small but very potent 
legacy because this movie is obviously really famous and she's basically the lead character. But an interesting thing happens halfway through the movie, which is that they do wind up killing him. They drown him in the bathtub of the mistress's house in this very disturbing scene. Yeah, I mean, crucially, the way this scene is filmed is extremely grotesque because you see him like drowning and then you see his body and they've got his hair is all like bedraggled over his face and his eyeballs are kind of like popping out and rolled up it's really disgusting and i was like wow this is a great effect they've got with this actor here he looks very drowned (laughs) yeah he looks awful like truly bad and then they put the body in a trunk and drive all the way back to the school and then the plan is to dump the body in the pool at the school which is very it's like all covered in muck And so it wouldn't be like instantaneously visible to everybody. And the thing that's really amazing about this whole long sequence of murder and then body disposal is it's a really fantastic example of this type of thriller where there's just dozens and dozens of tiny little logistical problems that could occur at every single point of this journey where, you know, they've got this huge trunk. So how do you lift as two chain-smoking, unhealthy 1950s women, (laughs) this box with, like, an unwieldy adult man corpse in it. (laughs) And then, like, get... So they've got to, like, get this out of the apartment without alerting the neighbours in a way that looks suspicious. And then they've got to drive through the French countryside and, of course, they get interrupted by people. And then they finally make it to the school and it's like, well, we've got to dispose of this body in the pool in a way that means that it's going to be found soon but not immediately, so they're not implicated. And then they've got to get back, and they've got to do this without arousing suspicion of all of the people who are literally living at the school. Yes, and they manage to do all of it. It's basically the perfect murder, because they. the reason that they've gone through all of this is that they have to make sure that they were not present when it will be assumed that the death happened, because of course they would immediately be suspected because of the domestic abuse that is happening. And obviously also like the spouse is always suspected in a murder case, but several days pass and no one's finding the body. And the wife is just completely freaking out. And the mistress keeps saying like, you need to stop acting like this. Like we cannot be acting guilty of something like this is just not going to work. So they orchestrate a way to get the pool cleared and there's no body in the pool. Which is when the movie, like, really sets off on its, like, second half. I was truly gasping. I saw nothing coming. Amazing, amazing film. And I think what is so interesting about what happens at this point is that throughout this whole portion of the movie, the mistress character, Signore, has been completely in control and confident about what's happening. And as soon as the body disappears, it's not like the wife immediately is, like, calm. But she gets increasingly confident about what's going on. Or, like, confident in her sort of situation as the rest of the movie progresses. And you see Signore get increasingly anxious, which is not has not been her vibe up to this point. Because it becomes much less about logistics and more about this sense of religious and cosmic I was about to say, it's like, as a devout Catholic, she is more psychologically prepared to deal with a vengeful ghost representing her own guilt. 
Well, right. And she's already been feeling really guilty, hence her feeling incredibly anxious about when the body's going to be found. And as soon as this happens, and then, like, they're, they go back up to, like, her room after the body's not there and are like, what the fuck? And um, someone comes, like, some messenger boy comes by and is like, oh, yeah, I have Monsieur Whatever's suit that he dropped off. And they're both like, excuse me? <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's like this, here's the suit he died in that he, as a dead person, has taken to get, like, dry cleaned. And so this sets off a separate kind of investigation where they are going off to follow this trail of clues left by the ghost of the guy they murdered. So she's like going off to the, the laundrette and then she finds out that he's had a secret hotel room, which he only visits at like weird hours. So she goes to this hotel room and is like, what the fuck is going on? And then comes back to the school and thinks that she spots him in a window. And there's a little boy who's convinced that this dead head teacher has given him detention and made him go and sit in the naughty corner so it's all just like unbelievably confusing and scary and disturbing because the tone of the film is not really ghost story you know it's not like there's a person in a sheet wandering around in the background it's still in the sort of scary suspense crime thriller zone and this is the point where they introduce literally detective Columbo <laughs> like 20 or 30 years before Detective Columbo showed up, but they have like this retired, seemingly very bumbling, very messy French police detective who meets up with the wife when she goes to inspect a corpse that she thinks is her husband, and it's not. And he sees an interesting case and kind of follows her to the school in a very Columbo-like fashion and starts asking questions. And that's the point where we get to like the final act and the mystery really starts to close in. Yeah, I love this guy. Just a great grizzled old face and asking incredibly nosy and intrusive questions without really anyone asking him to. And the like perversity of her agreeing to have this guy investigate a murder she herself has committed is truly beyond belief. I mean, absolutely sublime. When they get back to the school and he's nosing around and Simone Signore sees him, she's just like, what? What the like, fuck? Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> but you get the sense, I mean, it's not like all of the wife's anxiety vanishes at all. She is increasingly convinced that, like, she is being punished for something that she deserves to be punished for, right? And I think part of what I really admired about the movie was that it's not making a particularly moral statement, for the most part, about anything that these people have done. Like, clearly it's saying that the guy sucks, but... It's not saying that, like, deciding to murder him was a good or bad idea. It's really more responding to the individual characters and how they would process this, right? Like, clearly this woman would react to this this way because she is so Catholic. And to her, this is a huge moral violation. Whereas to the other woman, it isn't. And... Like, the act of killing someone is driving them both kind of nuts, but in very different ways. And it's more about this sort of, like, lingering purgatory, right, than anything else. And I really appreciated that feeling of just, like, well, 
here we are, which I think ties into the fact there's almost no music, right? Like the movie's not really trying to dictate to you what you're supposed to think, at least ethically, about what has happened, I don't think. Well, should we discuss the final spoiler? Why don't we talk before we get to that about a couple other thematic things? I want to talk about the school a little bit more. Yes. Wonderfully evocative school with yeah. a really strange room. I think I maybe texted you about it at the time because, like, the um the main couple have this bedroom that looks like it's the kind of converted cloister of a church or something. Because like the exterior of the building looks like a school, right? And like you have other interior sh- scenes that look like normal classrooms and a normal, rather decrepit dining hall. And then their bedroom has this whole wall. That's not a wall. It's like a sort of grid of wooden slats that you can see through. So like anyone walking past can see into their bed. Well, there's another door beyond that. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's a minor detail in the film, but I was just like, what is this? I mean, obviously more importantly, the setting itself is very evocative. And I'm like, wow, I really know what it's like to be in a somewhat down at heel 1950s boys boarding school. But I got very stuck on the transparent wall. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, there is a there's a door behind behind yeah. the wall that, yeah. that keeps them private. But it definitely does look like part of a church, which is in tune with her Catholicism. And she has this like shrine in there too. <laughs> yes, very appropriate. I mean, I don't know. France had a lot of churches at one time. Maybe this was converted from one of those churches. I feel like part of the dining hall also kind of looks like it was part of a church. Um, I'm sure it was all on purpose, but... I think that the way the boys are depicted in this movie is really incredible. There are a couple of them who kind of recur, but it's not as though they're more like a mass. They're just like a group who kind of go in and out while the adults are getting characters. I kind of feel like in early and mid 20th century French cinema, for some reason, there were like loads of really good movies with just like kids in. You know, I feel it feels like there's some part of the the French cinematic vibe where they were like, we really understand how to depict an urchin or a gaggle of urchins. <laughs> it's just something I kind of think of seeing a lot in movies from that kind of thirty year period. Yes, well, the Four Hundred Blows was only a few years after this. Obviously, very different vibe. But the boys in this are all great. Like acting wise, they're totally wonderful, and they just felt completely like real kids to me in the sense that they are both very sweet and really obnoxious at at the same time. So one of the articles I was reading was talking about how there's this sense of like the diseased or warped family in this movie, which I thought was totally spot on and very interesting. And so, I mean, the movie literally opens with like, this woman is this guy's mistress and like his wife completely knows about it. And he's carrying on literally in front of her. I mean, not in the symbolic sense of literally, like they are all in the same room and he's just talking about the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's bad and is obviously mistreating them quite badly. And there's a scene in the movie where the boys are talking about women or girls and calling them pigs or something. And it is all kind of reflective of the way that women are treated at the school. Right. 
And they're all, they're like entitled little rich kids who happen to have been, had the misfortune of being sent to this school with a headmaster who's totally stingy. Because when they're going on vacation, they're like, well, I'm not going to pick up my suitcase because that's the chauffeur's job. And then like other male teachers who are secondary characters are just like, what is happening? Like, how, who are these brats? <laughs> At the same time, though, they're you get the sense that they're quite sweet and earnest and they're very dedicated to their teachers. Like they know that Vera Cluzo's character has a heart problem. And so they know they're not supposed to upset her. When yeah, she's- like later on when she's starting to really panic because her husband's body's missing, they're all quite nice to her. And there's a scene where like they know she's coming in and they can tell that she's upset. And like the sort of leader boy is like getting them all to get in their places and be really well behaved. And like, I-, I found that really touching and it felt very true to me also that like kids can be so both things at once right and especially if you're not living with your parents which I don't have any experience with at that age but like kids can be very very attuned to adults and if you don't have your parents to be thinking that way about like the teachers are going to stand in for that right and so they're very attuned to what's going on with them and like spying on them and gossiping about them which totally makes sense as well I mean, this skill definitely had that kind of vintage idea of basically just like putting your kids in the bin, right? Because it's like, as you said, the kids are all really rich, but the school is pretty shit because the parents just don't really care. They're not like oversending these children to the greatest boarding school in the world. It's like they're sending them to this place that's kind of crap with bad supervision where there's a bunch of like abuse and murder happening because that's what you do with your kids while you're off skiing or whatever. Yeah. And the one boy who gets kind of more face time than the others is the one who sees this ghost of the headmaster. And he's very young and is very, very sweet and cute. And everyone is just like, you didn't see him. You're lying. You're a liar. Like, we know you're a liar. And the wife is the only one who's sort of sympathetic to him. But then she is immediately caught up with, like, being too ill and stressed out to sort of deal with it. But the movie keeps coming back. To him, like, it doesn't forget about his presence. And so you have this very adorable, like, innocent kid who is kind of caught up in this weird mess in a way that's, like, on the edge of the movie, but that felt very intentional to me. And this kid, I think, was a really famous child actor at the period. Yeah. Because there's a child named Georges Poujouli who had previously been in another movie called Forbidden Games a couple of years earlier, which was huge overseas and won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, like, in 1952. So he already had done, like, one really big movie and then also did this and a few others and then uh, ceased to be a child actor. I mean, that's the dream, really. Good for you. Yes, it's like, go into a secondary career. (laughs) Yeah, but he's, I mean, he's really, really good. And I just, I just saw a movie that shall not be named with a terrible child actor in it. And when the k- kids are bad, it, it's tough, you know? <laughs> like, and all the kids in this just felt really natural to me. And I think having them in there, it's, again, it's not like banged over the head, but I think you need to feel a sense of like potential risk and damage to younger people who are kind of just collateral damage from this like fucked up love triangle right not that the wife isn't like a victim obviously but she's kind of enmeshed in this thing and has been for years right whereas like these little kids are obviously just like happened to get sent to the school which is just a mess 
And regrettably, all of the other boarding schools, exactly the same thing is unfolding there. (laughs) Well, perhaps not exactly the same, but doubtful that it's a big step up. But yes, let us talk about the ending now. At the end of the movie, the wife really starts to lose it and they become, various people become increasingly convinced that he's kind of haunting the school, her in particular. And um, the police investigator gets closer and closer to solving the crime. So Signore is like, I'm fucking out of here. Like, I do not need this. This is not... Like, I, I don't need to get caught by this man. And the doctors have said that the wife has to be on bed rest because if she sort of does anything, she's going to have a heart attack and die. And there's a shot of them leaving the school, basically saying, like, yeah, we didn't invite her to come to our sanatorium because we don't like to have deaths there. So she's clearly on death's door. But she winds up having this conversation with the investigator and she confesses everything that happened to him. And he's like, he says something kind of cryptic about how, like, not everything has sort of been resolved yet. And then she thinks she hears her husband in the building or, like, sees a light moving around or something. And there's this absolutely incredible sequence where, like, she is moving around her part of the school and is being followed by this specter, we think. And, like, something is typing on a keyboard and then there's just, like this sheet of paper that just has his name on it over and over again, but like in a sort of disorganized fashion. And um, she goes back to her bathroom and he, the, he emerges from the bathtub exactly looking exactly like he did when they murdered him and like takes these white things out of his eyes. And then like his eyes look normal again. And she has this like very theatrical heart attack and sort of keels over and dies and then Signore shows up again and she and the husband are like, we've pulled it off. She's dead. And then they kiss because, of course, it was a plan the whole time. And then Mr. Colombo, she's like, not so fast. I've caught you. And then they go to jail because everything has to end in a morally satisfying fashion in a movie from the 1950s. <laughs> but not before we've had something which is, of course, a classic of the genre, which is a woman running through corridors in a white nightdress, which unlike in the American version, you can see her nipples through, which I noticed halfway through and was like, how scandalous, how French. I know. (laughs) But you've got to have someone running in a nightgown. (laughs) They're very visible. I think the end of this is really fascinating. I think the sequence where she's running around waiting to be confronted by his ghost is basically one of the best things I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, we love a good corridor. Yes, but... This combination of that and then the, like, escalation of slightly surreal images. Like, the thing with the typewriter I was describing is really weird (laughs) and unnerving. And then him emerging out of that bathtub and then, like, pulling his eyes out, kind of, is just such a viscerally disturbing image Yeah, and, like, once you know the trick, it's still disgusting because he looks terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that whole thing feels very pure cinema to me, which, in my mind, is, like, no dialogue or very minimal dialogue, and it's all about the image and, like, the feeling the image is conveying to you. And, again, there's, like, no music. It's all just about the, like, tension of what the character is going through and, like, the montage, right? And the end where they're, like, 
oh yeah, it was all a plot, and then they get caught by the police, feels so unbelievably tacked on. It is comical to me. Like, it doesn't ruin the movie for me at all, because I'm just like, ah, yes, the past. This is what had to happen in order for movies to get made. And, like, France didn't have a production code in the same way the United States did, but it feels absolutely like a product of a similar impulse, right? Which is that it has to end in a moral way, the bad guys have to get punished, and there has to be a rational explanation for what's going on, because just being like, we're not going to explain whether this is a ghost or what's happening. You're just going to see this sequence of incredibly unnerving images and then the movie's going to end, which is clearly how the movie should end. That's not acceptable at the time, right? So instead we get this sort of hokey conclusion. But I think the movie still kind of... Like, you can kind of watch the movie believing that that ending doesn't exist and it still completely works but it also supports the ending that does exist. And I think that duality is really impressive. Yeah, good movie. What was your reaction to the twist unfolding? I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean, I kind of knew that he wasn't actually a ghost because just tonally it's like, there's not a ghost in this film, but I was still like, what? (laughs) Well, also in that sequence, like the places where he physically has to be, it's... It is physically impossible for him to be getting from one place to the other. So so the movie's kind of taunting you in that way, too. Being like, yeah, we know this is impossible, but, like, whatever, you know. Yeah. Not to lower the tone, but I hope there's a little bit of this in Knives Out (laughs) 2. I'm sure Ryan Johnson is a fan of this movie. I mean, it seems... Oh, absolutely. 100% he's a fan of this. Yeah. (laughs) We should also say that the original book, it's um, a man and his mistress conspiring to murder his wife, and that that was changed for the movie. It seems like primarily because Clouseau wanted to give his wife a bigger part, but um, the film that results, needless to say, is like a thousand times more interesting than... Yeah, because you're like, I really sympathize with this person's motives for doing a big murder, which is not typically how a lot of these films launch in. Yeah, I think there was something about like an insurance scam, which is, a you know, that's often a plot point. But in this case, it's like he's raping and beating these people, which more compelling than insurance money. But it also means that you have this kind of like lesbian frisson between the two characters, which we haven't really mentioned much at all and it's not like over the top but it definitely is present in the movie and adds this interesting context i think and then bafflingly in the 1990s the americans tried to remake this film starring sharon stone and it was panned because why would you try to remake this not only that the director was a guy who directed things like national lampoon's christmas vacation So all of the decision-making in this, just baffling. But yeah, Diabolique now lives on in the cinematic imagination and is highly influential. Yes. And Clouseau after this. So I had had pulled a number of little bits and pieces about Clouseau being an asshole, which we didn't get into so much. But he sounds 
like a real piece of work. There's some article from film, an old film comment by this guy, Dan Yakir, who he says he was known to withhold the concluding pages of a mystery, mystery script from the cast and crew to keep them on their toes, which like, you know, fair enough. There was also a story about him slapping Brigitte Bardot repeatedly to get her to like in the right mental place for a take, which like, no, no, no. And then a quote from him where like when someone complained about something, he would just say the next time it might be worse. I'm not here to amuse myself. Which like, Okay, sir. The fact that one of his other really big famous films was a documentary about Picasso with where he worked closely with Picasso really feels like a match made in hell. Yes, that movie is apparently absolutely incredible and I would like I to mean, see it. I mean, I have no doubt. Yes, but basically not long after this, I think this was his last big hit and um, the Cahiers du Cinéma... Get started up not long after. André Bazin was a huge fan of this movie, I believe, in particular, and I think Clouseau in general. But Truffaut and Godard and et cetera, et cetera, were like, that old man, like, he's just a relic of the past. Like, get out of here. And as I said at the top, like, he basically just became old news and didn't work so much later in his life. And, um based on what we've just read about what he was like as a person, perhaps not the worst thing in the world, although I don't think that a lot of those new wave guys were much of an improvement. So <laughs> no, <laughs> in terms of like the artistic merit, like it's really too bad because I think that he's incredible, but it is a good illustration. I think of just trends and fads, right? That like people were just like, we don't want this. We want something else. And, you know, now you watch this movie and it feels very much like clearly a film made pre-New Wave, but very daring in a lot of ways and clearly influential on later filmmakers in lots of different ways. And like the sexual politics are a lot better than a lot of the New Wave stuff. So, you know. I want to read a feature magazine article interviewing couples who went on their first date to this movie in 1955. <laughs> I mean, I would love that. If only someone had done that at the time. Yes. <laughs> I can imagine a lot of people just being like, let's just go our separate ways now. It's just <laughs> uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, needless to say, we highly recommend this. It is streaming on HBO Max at the moment. And I think other places, it's very accessible. But yes, if you would like to request an episode or listen to our bonus episode on Top Gun, the original, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We, of course, greatly appreciate everyone who supports us there. A five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use is greatly helpful with uh, visibility. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my work at The Daily Dot, where I have probably reviewed something exciting and fascinating recently. Undoubtedly. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The pod is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.